In our study of the book of Luke, uh, we come to this interesting story of um, the demoniac, a man who was demonized, had demons, and revealed himself as legion. Uh, legion, just as an introduction, is a Roman term. It's a Roman military term. It means uh, a regiment, uh, basically 5,000, uh, 6,000, excuse me, 6,000 foot soldiers and about 700 cavalry, uh, so horsemen. So almost 7,000 uh, strong is a Roman regiment or a legion. So it was, it was a humongous power, uh, strength that revealed itself there. And Jesus set him free. So Jesus came to set the captives free. This is his calling based on Luke chapter 4. When Jesus revealed himself the first time he stood up in a synagogue, he said that, I have come, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. He came to set the captives free. So the story we'll look at this morning is found in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. If you have your Bibles, would you please open them to this passage? I do not have it on the screen. I would like you to just follow along in your own Bibles um, uh, in this passage. Let's read Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Then they, this is the disciple, disciples and Jesus, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept on the guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had enter entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Verse 32, Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. <clears throat> When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Verse 36, those who had seen it reported them to the man who was demon-possessed, excuse me, how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him, Jesus, to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Amen. 
we really need to understand this story with the passage that is beforehand. Luke chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus talks to his disciples and says, let's go across the lake. Let's go on the other side. And so as they go forth in a, in a boat across the lake, uh, Jesus falls asleep in the boat, in the stern of the boat, and a big storm happens. Uh, the waves and the wind, they, they threaten the boat, and the disciples are scared. And so they go to Jesus, wake him up, and say, don't you care that we're drowning? So Jesus gets up, he calms the storm, the waves and the wind, Matthew says, he looked at his disciples, oh, ye of little faith, you know, I'm here, I'm with you. And then the disciples look at each other and say, who is this man? Who is this man? Even the wave, waves and the wind obey him. Who is this man? So Jesus, who has the authority over nature to calm down a massive storm. And here in this passage, we see Jesus, who has the authority to cast out demons to, over the spirit world. So Jesus is revealing his divinity. He's showing that he is the, the son of God and all authority, all power has been given to him. Yet it's curious, isn't it, that in verse 22, Jesus told his disciples, let's go across the lake. Now you need to know something. That this is not Israel anymore. When they, go, when they cross the lake, they get to another country. They get to another place. They get into the area of the Gerasenes over here. And then the Decapolis, and that's not Jewish. This is not Israel at all. There's three times when Jesus traveled outside of, that I can see, outside of the Jewish nation. This is the first time he went across the lake into the area of the Gerasenes. Then he went up to Mount Hermon, which is probably where the transfiguration happened, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, Luke chapter 9. And the third time, Matthew tells us this story, is when he went to the area of Syrah and Tyre, Sidon and Tyre, and he went into a home uh, to try to get away from the people. And uh, everybody heard that Jesus was in town, but this is not Israel, remember? So a woman comes up to Jesus um, who has a daughter who is demon-possessed, and she asks Jesus to heal her. Jesus looks at her and says, no one gives food, uh, no father gives food that is on the table and gives it to the dogs. I have only come for the lost sheep of Israel. And then the woman responds, yet the dogs live of the crumbs that fall off the table from their master. And Jesus looks at her and says, you have great faith. And he answers her prayer and he heals her daughter. But did you notice that Jesus says, I have only come to the lost sheep of Israel? Yet Jesus goes forth, tells his disciples, let's go across the lake. He goes into foreign territory. He goes into the nations. He goes on a mission trip, quote-unquote. How come? Although Jesus was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, I believe this is not just a, a passage that reveals us to us the power of Jesus over creation and over the spirit world, but it also shows us the heart of God, which is ultimately for the nations. And so Jesus, knowing that he would leave his commission with the disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of the nations, knowing that this was the great commission, it's almost like he's giving them a taste of what it will be like ultimately when they will spread out from Jerusalem through the end of the world, when the church will spread. And so he's, he's taking them, so to speak, he's taking them on a missions trip. He's going across the lake, he's going into a foreign territory where they have no knowledge whatsoever of the Bible, 
and he's exposing them. He's giving them a little bit of a taste, a vision of what is yet to come. Now, the disciples don't understand this. But I believe that this is a passage that also shows us the heart of God, which is for the nations. God's heart beats for the nations. And his desire is that all nations will worship him ultimately. That's the vision that we see in the book of Revelation. But did you notice how the people responded in this story? Ultimately. So they saw the miracle. They saw it performed. They saw that the person was freed from the uh, demonic oppression. And then they were scared. They were frightened. And they asked Jesus to leave. We don't know what to do with you. Who are you anyway? And so they, they were so scared. He didn't fit in their in, in, in their concept of, of what religion would be like. And so they were scared and they asked Jesus to actually leave. Now compare this with John chapter 4. When Jesus is traveling through Samaria, he gets to the woman at the well. Remember the story, John chapter 4. Uh, he leads her. She understands he's the Messiah. Then she goes away, goes to her village, tells everyone what Jesus has done, who he is. The whole village comes out to Jesus like they are coming out to Jesus here. And how are they responding? They're asking Jesus to stay. Stay for, with us as long as he can. So Jesus stays with them for two days. As a result, at the end of John chapter 4, we read that the whole village believed in Jesus. The whole village believed. And they told the one, now we believe not just because of what he's done to you, but we ourselves know that he is the Messiah. In this passage, the people respond with fear. They're scared of what Jesus is. And so they ask Jesus to leave. So Jesus gets into a boat. He's ready to leave. The man comes up to Jesus, begging him, please let me come with you. He doesn't know what else to do. You've healed me. I'm free. Let me come with you. Jesus, what does he tell him? No. I want you to go home. I want you to go to your city and tell everyone what God has done for you. And so he does. Mark actually tells us that he went through the whole area of the Decapolis here. This whole area. He didn't just go to his hometown. He went through the whole region proclaiming what God has done for him, proclaiming who Jesus is. Now, next week we'll talk about the story of Jairus and his daughter, whom Jesus raised from the dead. At the end of that story, what does Jesus tell Jairus' family? Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Isn't that curious? So on the one hand, he tells this man, go tell everyone. On, the, on this hand, he tells him, don't tell anyone. Because the Jews have the revelation from God. They have the scripture. They should know he's the Messiah. But these are pagans. They're Gentiles. They don't know anything. And I think what Jesus is doing, he's, he's planting a seed. He's planting a seed that will eventually bear fruit. In the book of Acts, we see, and we know, Acts chapter 11, verse 19, where the persecution happened. It says that those who were scattered because of the persecution made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Yet they spoke only to Jews except in Antioch. So the first church, Gentile church, was established in Antioch in Syria. But the, the news spread, the gospel spread eventually, not just there and through Paul's and the mission trip, but the gospel went throughout the world, even as far as India with Thomas and other, some of the others of the disciples. So what's Jesus doing? I think he's planting the seed of the coming harvest. He's taking his disciples on a missions trip to help them catch a vision ultimately for the nations and who they are. 
Now, if this is the case also, then you need to understand what's happening on the lake is not just a storm. It's an attack. They're being attacked. Satan is attacking them, knowing what the Jesus goes over there for a purpose. Satan is attacking them, even causing a storm to come. So whenever, whenever we step out even by faith, going outside of us, reaching out for people, what follows? Attacks are very common, aren't they? This is just sort of a, an introduction to the story, just to help you understand Really, uh, the gist of the story, it is about the power of Jesus. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth. But he also is the God who loves the nations. And Jesus here traveling across the lake just to, to plant the seeds of the word of God even into the hearts of the Gentiles. What I would like to do is just um, take you a little bit through the story, give you a few thoughts uh, to what's going on, and then ask the question, what does this mean for us today? How does this apply to us, so to speak, uh, in our world today. So, um, look at demonic manifestation. So here's how this man is being oppressed. And by the way, let me just say this. Uh, so this story is told in three Gospels. It's told in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Three times it's, it's told. Mark and Luke are very similar, almost the same. There's a few details that are different, but Matthew is totally different. Matthew actually says there were two demon-possessed men. Not just one, but two. Oh, so some people are very clever. Oh, you see, the Bible is not reliable, you know, because one says two, the other one says one. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, actually, what Matthew is doing, he's giving us the big picture. Matthew doesn't go into details. Matthew just tells us Jesus went across the lake. There were two demon-possessed men. Jesus healed them. End of story. Mark and Luke focus in on the one person who the work of God is so awesome, so great, they just follow this story. So you need to see, the, get the full picture and put it together. There were two. There were two. Yet, Mark and Luke just focus in on the one. So it says here, Matthew tells us they were violent. Violent. No one could pass by because they were so violent, people were afraid to go near them. Uh, Mark tells us they had an unclean spirit. This is the most common word when it comes to demons. They are unclean. They're unclean. They're not holy. They're unclean spirits. No one could bind them. This is supernatural strength. You may have heard stories about this. This is not just going to the gym and you're really strong. You can lift your weight. No, this is supernatural strength. No one can bind them. Uh, Luke tells us the story in Acts chapter 19. Paul being in Ephesus and there was, a, there was a, a Jewish leader. He had seven sons, and they went out to cast out demons. And they did so. They were Jewish. They were not believers, but they did so using the name of Jesus and using the name, name of Paul. And, and so one of the demons turned on them and says, Well, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And he beats them up. So one against seven they had no chance. They all basically have to go to the hospital afterwards. He just beats them up. This is, this is supernatural strength. Where does it come from? This is not human anymore. So this is, this is demonic manifestation, even physically in the life of a person, where you wonder, where does this come from? Mark tells us that night and day, they would roam among the tombs and in the hills and would cry out. So there's just this sense of restlessness, always moving, no peace. 
in the life of this person. Uh, he would cut himself with stones. It's self, uh, self-hurt, self, uh, uh, self-hatred that shows up in their lives. Uh, Luke tells us that he was naked. He had lost all sense of shame. He had not worn clothes for a long time. Who does that, you know? Who does that? It's just you, you've lost a sense of, of even who you are as a person. Uh, he was living not in a house but in tombs, not talking about tombs in the ground, but to, like, like caves, you know, in, in the mountainside, how the Jews would bury their people in these caves, designated places, and that's where they would live. It's just not natural, is it? Who lives in a tomb, you know? Um, they would fall down, cry out. He was seized many times, bound in shackles, kept on the guard. No one could keep him. They were so strong. And they were driven into the desert. There's this sense of restlessness, just always on the move. No peace. Um, of course, talks about the legion, and then he was out of his mind because at the end he was in his right mind. And so people were perplexed, like, this guy can actually talk, you know? He's making sense. And was, there's was just this gibberish coming out of him. Nobody could really fathom what is he trying to say here. Do you get the picture? Get the picture? Demonic manifestation. Now, this is an extreme case, okay? This is very extreme. Doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Now, I want you to compare the work of Satan with the work of the Spirit of God. Jesus who comes and says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me. All who are burdened, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble at heart. That's our God, you know? Compare that with the work of Satan, the manifestations of demons. Compare that with how Jesus works in our lives. Now, in John chapter 10, he talks about the picture of a sheep pen. And he says that the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way, so forces his way in to the sheep pen. Who is he? He's a thief. He's a robber. He's come to destroy. He's come to kill. He's come to take away. The man who enters through the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. He takes the right way. He goes through the gate. He will not force his way in, but he will go the normal way, and the sheep know him, Jesus says. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in and have fellowship with him. Now, I know that this is given in the context of the letters to the churches, uh, the church in Laodicea, which needed to repent. But the principle behind it is what? That Jesus will never force himself on you. He will never force himself. He stands at the door. He knocks. We can either open the door or we can keep the door closed. Satan will force his way in. He will try to find a way to force his way in. Demonic powers, demonic oppression will, will come upon a person against their will. Jesus will never go against our will. Because he seeks us to work in harmony with him. That we want to follow him. That we desire to have him in our lives. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's not oppression, but freedom. So compare this. this on the one hand, is, the, is this ravenous thief who's come to steal, to destroy, and to kill, and the gentle shepherd. On the one hand, is there's oppression. On the other hand, there's freedom. On the one hand, there's 
force, forcing themselves on a person. On the other hand, there's choice. Jesus gives us a choice. So which spirit is at work? You know, this is how you can determine the kind of spirit that is at work even in our own hearts. As we uh, continue on the story, um, in verse 28, it says that the man, well, this is, this is interesting. Whenever Jesus is, uh, and, and, um, encounters demons, what do they do each time? The man falls on their knees, and they proclaim who he is. They always say, we know who you are. We know who you are. You're Jesus. You're the son of the living God. You're actually the Messiah. They know him. He says, we know you are the son of the most high God. They, they're forced to proclaim. It's like, like they can't keep quiet. Why? Because they actually, they have physically seen Jesus sitting on his throne. They were there. They have seen him. James tells us, you believe in God? Good. Because even demons believe. Yet they shudder. They believe because they know. They know who Jesus is and so they are forced. They are forced to proclaim Jesus. Yet Jesus never accepts, never accepts their proclamation, never accepts what they're proclaiming. He tells them to be quiet. And then they ask Jesus not to torment them uh, because he's already told them to go out, get out of him. So he asked, please don't torment us. What is it, are they talking about? How would Jesus torment them? Well, in verse 31, it says, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. The abyss is the ultimate destiny of Satan. Revelation chapter 20, at the end of, of the Bible, we are told that ultimately Jesus will return and he will gather, not only us, he will also gather all spiritual powers. He will bind Satan. He will bind the demons. He will cast them into the lake of fire, which is the abyss, which is their destiny. Now, Peter and Jude give us a few details when it comes to this. They say, this is not only a future destiny, it's already a current reality for these demons. So Peter says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned. So demons are fallen angels. They used to be angels. They're fallen. They become demons. But cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude says, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned a proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds on the darkness of the judgment of the great day. So they tell us that the abyss is not just a future reality, already is a reality now for demons. So there are some fallen angels, there are some demons who rebelled against God who are already kept in bonds, in darkness, in, in the abyss. And so the demons are afraid that Jesus would send them there. Don't send us there, please. Okay? They're begging him not to... Jesus has the authority to do so, but they're begging him, don't send us there before our time. They know that's their destiny. Satan knows that's his destiny. But they're asking him not before their time. So Jesus, for whatever reason allows them to go into a herd of pigs. Um, Mark tells us it was about 2,000 pigs. Um, huge herd. Tremendous loss for the herdsmen. 2,000 pigs. I don't know what the value of a pig would be at that time, but it's a lot of... of why did Jesus allow that? Why did Jesus, instead of sending them to the abyss, which I would have preferred personally, you know, get rid of them, why did he allow them to stay put? to stay in this world? I don't know. I don't have an answer. Other than, remember they're unclean spirits? 
These are unclean animals. Sort of go together, you know. No? So Jesus allows them to. Um, I don't want to say a lot about this. I, I do want to point out a story here, a parable, which is a strange parables, a parable from, from Scripture. And Luke chapter 11, tells, Jesus tells us this parable of a, of a man who had an unclean spirit. If the unclean spirit leaves the man, so if the demon leaves the man, he will go around looking for a place to be. If he cannot find a place to rest, he will come back to the person. Now as it seems that the house is cleaned up, because the person tried to get its life together, he will come back, bring seven friends and come back, and he says it will be worse now than it was before with the person. What is Jesus trying to teach us through this? Two things. Demons are looking for places where they can dwell. They want to live somewhere. They need to find places of where they can rest. And we look at the application. We're asking the question, what does that mean? So, but demons can live, even in animals, they can live in places where they're looking for. The second one, and that's an important point. Jesus is saying it's not possible for someone to get rid of a demon and not be set free. It's not possible. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You cannot have freedom from oppression apart from Jesus. It's not possible. There's no neutral ground. Spiritually speaking, there is no neutrality. Uh, Jesus says, who is not for me is against me. Take your pick. If you are not for me, you're automatically against me. You cannot get rid of Satan. You cannot get rid of, of, of Satan's works or demonic oppression in your life or bondages, whatever you have in your life, and then say, but I want to live my life for myself apart from Christ. It's not possible. There is no spiritual neutrality. Jesus says that spirit at any time Although he cleans up his house, the spirit at any time, he can come back. And it will be worse then than it was before. Do you understand? So Jesus came to set the captives free. But there's only one place where there's truly freedom. Only one. That's with Jesus Christ. He came to break the bondages of evil. So let me get more a little bit of application questions and see what does this mean for us uh, today? How, what are we to do with this story uh, for us in our culture even today. Um, first, let, let me say this. Um, I don't know what you, your beliefs are about demons. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, do they exist? Do they not exist? Let me just say this. The Bible does not argue the existence of demons. It just says they are. It does not, ex it does not argue the existence of angels either. It just says there are angels, Okay. Neither does it argue the existence of God. The Bible just simply makes the statements in the beginning, God, take it or leave it, okay? He is. Whether you like it or not, He is. The same is true of demonic powers. The same is true of angels. They simply are. The scripture says they are. So that's how we need to approach Scripture. And if you look at the book of Luke alone, these are the references in the book of Luke. There's actually a couple more which didn't fit on the page that tell us about demonic activity in the book of Luke. You take Matthew, you take Mark, you take Luke, you take John, you take the New Testament. There's, there's about a hundred or so times that demons are referred to or, ref, uh, or mentioned in the New Testament alone. Most of the time it just tells Jesus, cast out a demon, the person was healed. Um, 
But then he also talks about uh, the Pharisees who accused John. See that John, saying John has a demon. They said Jesus has a demon. So those are, a lot of times actually it makes reference to that as well. Now to understand what this means, I think we need to understand that God created us in his image. We are created in the image of God, as it says in Genesis chapter 1, in the image of God he created us, which is not just physical, it's also on the soul level, on the spirit level. We are spirit being, we are spiritual being at the core. God created us, he gave us a spirit, he breathed in us and we are spiritual beings. Our soul level is who we are. It's our thinking, ability to dream, ability to, uh, 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 to um, feel and all of this is part of the soul level. So God created us in this triune sense. Now, how can demonic oppression work when we look at this picture? Let's, look, let's talk about non-believers first. Talking about non-believers, and let me just say this before we get into this. Um, your Bible most like, likely talks about the person was demon-possessed, right? NIV, NASB, other translations, they talk about the person was possessed by a demon. Slightly difficult word to use because possession implies ownership, doesn't it? If you possess something, you own it. Satan can't really own. He can only squat. God is the true owner of all things. He created us in his image and we are to be owned or to be a possession of God eternal. But Satan will try and he will force his way in basically into our lives and say, claim like we, we belong to him, but we really should belong to God. So scripture doesn't actually use the word possession. Scripture in the New Testament says he had a demon, to have a demon, or to be demonized. Those words are used. It doesn't actually say possessed by a demon. So I prefer to say, talk about oppression. How are non-believers oppressed by demons? Let me say this, it's always spiritual, always. At the core, it's a spiritual issue. Sometimes it's mental. Sometimes it affects people to such a point where you look at them and say, they're weird. You know? They have this compulsive behavior. They may have this ability uh, to do things that are not natural. That's on a mental level. Rarely does it, is it physical. There's really only one story in Scripture that I see that affects the body, and that's the man who was, uh, who was mute. He could not talk because he had a mute spirit. That's the only reference that I see in Scripture where it was, was physical. Most of the time it's spiritual. Why? Because the God of this world, Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers that they cannot see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does demonic oppression work in unbelievers? It works by blinding their minds so that they cannot see, they cannot understand who Jesus is. Hence, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of having a demon. Hence, they say when Jesus casts out demon, well, it's because you do so by the prince of demons. The prince of demons. So it's, it's keeping them in darkness. And so Paul says our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. 
It's against the rulers, the powers and forces of darkness in the heavenly places. So demonic oppression, this is how Satan works. He will try to, or he forces us basically. He keeps us away in darkness so we cannot know Jesus. That is how spiritual oppression works in the life of non-believers. It's always, first and foremost, spiritual. But it can also be mental or physical. Uh, how is it possible that some people display, I don't know, I'm not sure, have you ever seen a person that's demonized? I don't know if you have. We have. They have these weird behavior, com- like a compulsive behavior, compulsive, strange behavior. They do things that are just not, not natural. They have abilities that are not, not natural. And it's like, how is it possible that, possible that demons can do that? Now, let me say this. This is doesn't happen a lot. It does happen. But it's not as common as the spiritual part. It's because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the things Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. If we worship a false god, any god, doesn't have to be a major religion, it can be things that we worship, that is not the true god, if we do not follow in our hearts the true God, but we worship something else, Paul is saying behind it ultimately is a demonic power at work. So they worship or sacrifice demons. And sometimes these demons will take a claim on a person's life. They can. They can. They're allowed to. Or First Timothy Paul says, the Spirit explicitly says that in the light lat- Later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So demons can actually teach us. So some of these religions, some of these philosophies, some of these things that are out there, if it's not the Word of God, which is revelation from God, who's at work? Scripture says Satan is at work, trying to keep people in bondage. And sometimes this bondage can live, be lived out in a place where people actually have this weird behavior. I could tell you stories upon stories of people that we met in Asia. Like very common in Asia is that people uh, would go to bed, they leave their lights on, they hate to sleep in the dark because they're scared of the dark. Uh, many times people would tell us stories of being choked in the middle of the night. They felt something on them, on their chests, and being choked. They couldn't breathe anymore. And, and they told us these stories, and they say, yeah, we believe you. You do? You do? Because for them, this is normal in many ways. And we say, yeah, we believe that. But that's not the Spirit of God. That's demonic oppression that is happening and trying to keep them uh, scared and away from Jesus, just like these people were scared and uh, sent Jesus away. So these kind of things are possible. And let me just say this, and I need to be careful here, but mental illness I'm not a psychiatrist. I've studied the Bible. I'm a theologian. But I think we need to approach people holistically and understand people. It's not just an issue of, of mental. It's an issue of the heart. And so many times, not always, okay, hear me well. I'm not saying this is always the case, but sometimes the cause may be spiritual. Sometimes the cause may be because there's oppression in a person's life. It's because these people have opened themselves up to the spirit world and that shows itself in manifestations which are just not normal anymore. And so maybe what they need, really, ultimately what they need is Jesus. Because Jesus came to set the captives free. 
And he's the only one who can bring true freedom. And that's, that's our hope and desire. And that's, I think, how we should approach any such uh, oppression that has um, shown itself in the people's lives. But then here's the, the other question. How does it show itself in the believer? And um, we talked about our mission strip earlier. And so Laura asked this question. How does, how does uh, demon oppression show itself in, uh, in a believer's life? Um, can, a, can a believer have a demon? I said, well, we've we got to make a difference between being demonized and being, having a demon. And I think it's possible to be demonically oppressed, even as a believer. It's possible. But really what we should understand is what Ephesians and Colossians teach us. Ephesians says that we were made alive with Christ Jesus, and He raised us up with Him, and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. So where are we, spiritually speaking? Where are we? Where are we? Spiritually speaking, now physically you're here, but spiritually speaking, our position is in Jesus at the right hand of God. That's where we are. Far above all power, authority, whatever is given there, we are actually above Satan through Christ Jesus. So we've been given the same authority that Jesus has. We can deal with spiritual issues. Colossians tells us that in Him is the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given this fullness. The fullness of Jesus is in us. Having said that, it is possible that we give the devil, as Paul says, a foothold. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, Paul warns the believers and says, Do not give the devil a foothold. Do not let the sun go down on, on your anger. So the context is anger. Do not let give the devil a foothold, or some translations say, or an opportunity. The word that is used here is topos which is topology, you know, it's a place. Don't give the devil a place in your heart. If we have unconfessed sin in our lives, if there are things that are not resolved in our lives, if we have a skeleton in our closet, so to speak, and we keep it there, we're not willing to forgive, we're not willing to let go of our anger, we have bitterness, we may have hatred, I don't know, whatever it is, because there's unresolved issues in our lives that we're not willing to let go of. Scripture says the devil has a foothold, has a place. So he can cause oppression in a person's life, even a believer's life. Now, God doesn't want that because Jesus came to set, set the captives free. But it's possible that that can happen. In Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? It's if we hold on to sin. Sin that we are aware of, as soon as we know that sin is present in our lives, what are you supposed to do? Confess it. Confess it. Let go of it. But if we hold on to sin in our lives, we grieve the Holy Spirit and we can give the devil a foothold. Uh, to go back to this um, diagram here, can we be owned? Absolutely not. The only one who can own us is Jesus Christ. And he says, no one, no one can, uh, um, what's the word, take him out, grab him out of my hands. You belong to me, Jesus is saying. But can we be influenced or controlled? Um, yes, it's possible. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? When they opened themselves up through lying. And Paul, uh, Peter looks at them and says, how come that the devil has taken control of your life. It's because they were able to give that to them. So there was a foothold in their lives. 
Can we be influenced physically? Yes, it happens. Job is a clear story. Paul himself, who prayed three times that God would take away um, the thorn in his flesh. And God says, let my grace be enough for you. Jesus has come to set the captives free. None of us should walk in, in any bondage. None of us should have any form of bondage in our lives, spiritual, mental, physical, because Jesus came to set the captives free. And that is his desire for us, is to be free, totally free. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. So may the Lord just make it evident to you if there's things in your life that you need to work through. In the early church, actually, um, when a person was baptized, they would always renounce Satan as part of being baptized. They would renounce the works of Satan in their lives. I think that's a wise thing to do so that we can follow Jesus and be set free. Let's pray.